Good morning. We are wandering in the wilderness right now. <laughs> and uh, we're still looking for a long-term solution until the uh, things can be worked out at, at Southern. So let's, let's go ahead and, and begin with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been uh, watching over and providing for us. We pray that your spirit will join us this morning, that our minds will be enlightened. We pray for our church today as they meet in Atlanta, that your spirit will be there and and that uh, you will have uh, individuals there who will stand up and speak the truth about your character and that and that our church can wake out of its slumber to do its mission, to take the truth about you to the world. We pray for Pat's mother, Amy Ricks, and that you will uh, intervene in her case as it is your will to bring healing to her. I pray that you also be with Dennis Kiley and his family is there dealing with the cancer and that you will uh, heal him and put that cancer into remission. And I again pray for my brother Bill that you will continue to give him strength and allow him and his body to heal. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are uh, doing lesson number two in our quarterly, uh, Redemption in, in Romans, and the title this week is Jew and Gentile. And the first three paragraphs in the lesson for this week, uh, in the Sabbath lesson, it says, The first converts to Christianity were all Jews. New Testament gives no indication that they were asked to drop the practice of circumcision or to ignore the Jewish festivals. But when the Gentiles began to accept Christianity, important questions arose. Should the Gentiles submit to circumcision? To what extent should they keep the Jewish laws? Finally, a council was called at Jerusalem to settle the matter. Despite a firm decision by the council not to trouble the Gentiles with a host of regulations and laws, some teachers continued to plague the churches by insisting that Gentile converts to the faith were required to keep these rules and laws, including circumcision. In some ways, these issues exist today, only in different forms. How often are we as Seventh-day Adventists accused of being Judaizers or legalists because of our adherence to the Ten Commandments or in actuality our adherence to the Sabbath commandment? How often do we hear that we are now under the New Covenant and so the law, the Sabbath commandment, has been done done away with? What are your thoughts about that? You ever heard that? How do you hear it? What do you think? Do, Do you critically start reasoning through? First question that popped in my mind was, are SDAs accused of being Judaizers because of adherence to the commandments or because of adherence to the commandments in a manner like the Jews did? Is that a difference? Is there, are, are those the same thing or is that a different thing? Yeah. So let's ask the question, how did the Jews adhere to the commandments? Legalistically. Legalistically. Arbitrarily. Okay. I just find that not being raised an Adventist and not becoming an Adventist while I was in my early, early 20s, that's one of the first things out of their mouth. Which is? Sabbath. One of the first things out of an Adventist mouth? Mm-hmm. Sabbath? For what purpose? Uh, do they put it, when you hear that, uh, the Sabbath, is it out there as a, such a joy and such a blessing, like, like when people talk about Jesus Christ who brings love and joy to our lives, is the Sabbath put out there as such a, such an opportunity, or is it put out there as some type of other thing? Legalistic. Legalistic in what way? How, how have you heard it? An arbitrary, an arbitrary day of commitment. She says an arbitrary test of obedience, an arbitrary day of commitment. You can and can't do what you can and can't do. How, the question, how did the Jews, how did the Jews observe Sabbath back 2,000 years ago? As a burden. Was it a day of rest and freedom and gladness and joy? 
a day of, of burdens and works and exhaustion and, and the most restricted and enslaving day of the year. So, uh, how did the Jews relate to the rest of the commandments of God? Did they approach the commandments as a list of deeds to be done, sins to be shunned, behaviors to observe? Is that how they approach them? The Sabbath really is open-ended. The first commandment in the commandments is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and then we'll get to the rest eventually, but hang on, we're not there yet. Tight attitude. So the question again, uh, Judaizing, is it about the commandments or is it about how we relate to the commandments? What was the purpose of the Ten Commandments? What was their purpose? Were they given as a list of deeds for us to follow? A list of behaviors for us to work to conform to? Is that the purpose that they were given? Diagnostic. Uh, Thank you. Diagnosis. Romans 5.20. The law was added so that trespass might increase. What's that mean? The law was added so trespass might increase. So we might be aware of our condition and uh, want to avoid things that harm us. Exactly. What's, what's the purpose of an MRI? To expose something that we otherwise wouldn't see uh, within us. The law was given to expose something that the sin or the trespass that was in us. And so Romans 7, 7. What shall I say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. So the law was given to expose and diagnose the sin problem. And so if we're right in our understanding that the law, the Ten Commandments, was given to diagnose and expose, then who was the law given for? Sinners. Okay, good. Yes. Uh, also, it was to tell us what the real nature of God was like, because we've been hearing all these lies from the devil for thousands of years, what God was really like. So God was having a chance to put it in writing, what he was really like. So a revelation uh, of, of what God's principles are. So the, the law was given, if we look at 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, notice who the law, the written law, was given for. If we're right, it's to diagnose, it's to expose sin, it's to bring us to conviction. It says, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law was not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, for the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he has entrusted to me. So what does it sound, who does it sound like this law was given for? For those of us who haven't yet come to a renewed heart and mind in relation with Jesus Christ. The law is diagnosed. Hey, you're terminal. You're dying. You've got a cancerous heart and mind. You've got principles of selfishness. You don't even realize how defective you are. So I've got to give you this law to show you, to diagnose you, to expose you. So what is it to do for us, the law? Galatians 3, 24 and 25, it says, So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Anybody want to explain that to me? Is that language hard to understand? 
And two weeks from now, lesson four, we're going to spend an entire lesson talking about justification by faith. It's really going to be an exciting lesson. Yes? When we see how miserable our lives are before Christ, and then when we see Christ and what a beautiful life He has, we want what He has. So then we don't need the law anymore because we're looking to Jesus for direction. Okay, okay, so we put it back in our medical model. We're sick. We've got, we got symptoms. We, we've got cancer inside. We're hurting. We, we can't, we've got nausea. We've got cramps. We've got pain. We know something's wrong, but we don't know what. So we go into the MRI scanner. The scanner scans us and reveals all the metastasis all through the organs. Does the MRI scanner cure us? Do we begin working to appease the scanner? Do, how about this? I know. We will get our healthy brother who's cancer-free and get him to take an MRI scan and we'll use his scan and put it in our records. Do you know this is classic Christianity? Christ came. He gets scanned. He goes through the law. Okay. When the Father looks at him, he doesn't see him. He sees us. His record stands in place of our record. How's that going to work for you? Or we get scanned, we recognize our sick state, and what Galatians says, well, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. The MRI was given to diagnose us and lead us to the physician. And what does the physician do? Heals. I forgive you for being sick. He heals us. He restores us. He puts the cancer into remission, and thus you can understand texts like without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. There's no regeneration. The cancer cells don't remit back to their original state. Our hearts and minds won't remit back to God's original design if without Christ. Is the law given so that we can work to keep it in order to prove to God that we're worthy? Is that the reason why? Was it given for us to work to, to, to appease or please? Is that how the Jews related to it? How about Adventists today? Are we working to keep the law? Questions? Does it make sense? So then, what is faith or trust? Enough to take the medicine the physician gives you. Uh, you know, even today in the healing model, if you have cancer, you finally go to the physician because you've been diagnosed, and he gives you chemotherapy. You don't know how it works, and you didn't make it, and you didn't design it, and you don't know what it does, but you are willing and open to the idea of taking it. Nicely stated, Linda. So here we have the MRI scans, uh, scans us, diagnosis. The law reveals we're sick and terminal. Uh, we go to the doctor. The doctor has a treatment that says, will cure us. Is there is some part of that interaction with the doctor where you have to, at some level, trust that doctor and follow his instructions? Now, if you trust the doctor and he says, okay, this is what we need to do. You need to take this medicine. You need to buy these things. You're trusting the doctor. Uh, do you get yourself well? Are you healing yourself? Yeah. Is there work you have to do? Does your work heal you? See, this is that cooperative faith work thing that they talk about constantly. Is it faith as it works? Well, if you trust the doctor, then you follow his instructions. Does your work of following instructions do the healing, or is the doctor still doing the healing? But you won't get well if you don't trust him because you won't follow his instructions. Does that make sense? There's a hand, yes. Uh, it's beyond just healing because there are people who are sick who don't want to get well because they like being sick. They like what they're doing. So they have to be shown that 
what Jesus has to offer, his life, his character, is worth uh, going to get healed for. I mean, you have to you have to show them that this is a better way. Let's talk about that. She raises a very good issue. I have patients all the time for various reasons. I have alcoholic patients, drug addict patients, who don't want to be free. What they want, they end up in the ICU with liver failure or GI bleeding or, or some other consequence of, of the abuse. Um, and they want something done to save their life. They want something done to take away their pain. They want something done to stop the, the liver failure. But they don't want something done to free them from the alcohol, which is destroying them. Or I've had patients with bipolar disorder in their manic state. And in their manic state, they have lots of energy. And they feel really good and they have all this euphoria. And, and, uh, and they don't want to take their medicine. Because when they take their medicine, they come down out of that euphoric state. And, and they don't want to. So they resist treatment. Um, I have other patients who have serious problems. They've been mistreated. Uh, uh, they've been neglected. They've been abused. They have a lot of fear and insecurity. And they resist treatment because treatment is painful. Treatment hurts. They don't want to go through the treatment process. And so they resist. And you see, of course, this is, uh, is the, an example for us in sin. In order to be free and be healed in heart and mind, is there a painful road that we go through? The Psalms tells us that the Lord leads us in the path of righteousness for His name's sake. A path that leads to righteousness for His glory, for His character, His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no... This is not the valley of death. This is the valley of the shadow of death. This is the valley in which it hurts so bad it feels like it's going to die. Because we're dying to self. We're dying to that old selfish nature. And it hurts. But this is the path that he's leading us through because he wants to free us from the old ways of doing these old selfish motives so that we can be free. I have patients who've been in dysfunctional relationships. Dysfunctional relationships that have been very destructive. And when those relationships end, I can see, as the doctor, I can see, if they allow the relationship to end, if they work through the issue, they will be free. They will be healthy. But ending that relationship is a valley of pain, and it feels like they're dying on the inside, like there's agony and suffering. It's a valley of the shadow of death. It's not death. Does that make sense? Yeah. All righty. So trust. Did you know that we've been accused uh, recently of, of our version, our model, being a works model? That it's not, it's not through God's grace and effort that we are working our way to heaven? Did you know people have accused us of that? Is that mind-boggling? And the reason why is because we say, we say in here that in order for us to experience salvation, we have to trust God. And they say, our trust is a work we have to do. And they say in the penal substitution model, um, what we have to do is have faith in what Christ has done. And that's not, that's not a work, you see. And, and, and just show you the, the, does anybody recognize the inconsistency in that thinking? Because in the Greek, the word P-I-S-T-I-S is translated as faith, belief, trust, confidence. One word for it all. One word, P-I-S-T-I-S. So if you have faith, you, you trust. If you trust, you have faith. And so for them to say, oh, we work because we have to exercise trust in God. But in, in that other model, no, we just have faith. That's not a work. It's an inconsistency. So... Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And you know the word substance in this paragraph comes from 
the Greek hypostasis, the first half of that word is hypo, as in hypoglycemic, low blood sugar, hypodermic injection under the skin, dermis is the skin, hypo under, so injection under the skin, hypo means lower, under, uh, Hypostasis, stasis means standing, translated into Latin, substance, subway, subterranean, uh, means under, stance means standing. Translated into English, faith is our understanding of things hoped for. And this word, um, back in 1611, when the, when the, um, King James Bible was translated into English, the reason it got into this word substance rather than understanding is because there were no other real uses of this word hypostasis. They, they, didn't, they couldn't go to ancient literature and find out how the word was used in sentences, and so they didn't really know exactly what this word hypostasis meant. Faith is our hypostasis. And so they just did a Latin translation, faith is our substance. And sub is understance, it's standing. Faith is our understanding. But when um, archaeological evidence has come to light since 1611 and has shown hundreds of contracts, business contracts that people would enter into, and the title of the business contract was hypostasis. The name of the contract was, uh, if you entered a contract with somebody, you entered into a hypostasis with them, an understanding. See, so a contract, a business contract would be an agreement, an accord, or an understanding. We have an understanding. You've heard that? Okay, we have an understanding. And so, uh, Ellen White says in Zyre of Ages 347, saving faith is a transaction by which those who receive Christ join themselves in covenant relationship with Him. So, faith is an understanding with God. We have an understanding with Him. So, the question to you is, what would that understanding be? What agreement or understanding do you have with God? Or what transaction, if we use the word transaction, what transaction do we have with God? If I give you my filthy rags, you'll give me a clothing uh, McCoy. Okay, I like this one very much. It comes out of um, Revelation. She says, if I give you my filthy rags, you'll give me a clothing of white. Okay, I like that very much. Uh, in, in Revelation, it says um, in chapter 3, buy from me gold tried in the fire. Right? Buy from me. How do we buy that from God? Gold is that perfect character. How do we buy it from God? In Galatians three twenty-seven, it says, "Many of you have been baptized into Christ and have put on Christ." It says in Galatians, it says, "Many of you have been baptized into Christ and put on Christ." Yes. So, how do we put on Christ? What is this transaction? Buy from me. What? How do we buy from Christ? It's the transaction, the transaction of faith. What is this understanding, agreement, or transaction that we have? How does it work? Have you thought of it this way before? Well, you can buy with money, or you can buy with barter. We can trade. We can trade up. What can we trade? What do we have to trade with God? And he invites us to do this. You you mentioned it already. Yes. We can choose to be obedient. Then then is our our obedience what we trade? we obey and we trade our obedience for salvation? Yes. Our will. He wants us. He wants us. There we go. So we give him ourselves. So what, and what condition do we give him ourselves in? When we go to him and give ourselves to Christ, what do we give ourselves? What condition? 
way we are. Exactly the way we are. So if we're battered, if we're bruised, if we've, if we've uh, been in alcohol or drugs, if we've been in prostitution like Rahab in the Old Testament, if we're a murderer like David, we come to him as we are and we give him ourselves. And when we surrender our hearts, our minds to him, what does he give us? Everything. Healing. A new heart and right spirit. Regeneration. Peace, renewal, forgiveness, cleansing, selfishness is removed, love is written in. We receive the mind of Christ. This is what we get. We give the old, he gives us the new. That's the only thing we have to give. Another way to look at this understanding is that as we give ourselves to him, we surrender to him our future, our outcomes. How many of you spend time worrying about how life's going to turn out? Yes. You notice Christ on earth didn't worry about those outcomes. It says he didn't even plan for the day. Because his future was... His respons- our responsibility, we say to God, I give you my life, my part of the bargain. What do you do to the physician? Make a bargain with the physician. What's your responsibility in the relationship with the physician besides, besides to pay your bill? <laughs> Follow the treatment. That's your part of the bargain. Okay, Our bargain is to follow where he leads. Where are you leading, Lord? I'll follow. Abraham, what was the relationship Abraham and the bargain Abraham had with God? The bargain, the transaction, the exercise of faith. And it says in Romans chapter 4 that when Abraham believed God or trusted God, it was recognized as righteousness. He was seen to be righteous. Why? Because Abraham exercised trust. There was a change of Abraham's attitude. His mind was no longer, I don't trust you, God. I now will trust you. And if I trust you, what will I do? If you trust the doctor, what are you going to do? Follow what he tells you to do. And so God said to Abraham, I want you to leave and I want you to go over here. Well, I trust you. Cool. I'm there. That's what he did. And so our responsibility is to trust and follow. His responsibility is to do all the healing and all the work. Yes. Job said, it's been very meaningful to me during tough times. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Yeah, Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Was that the most clear and accurate understanding of what was happening to Job? So, But the trust superseded his understanding of what was actually transpiring. He actually had some misunderstanding, thinking maybe God was involved in doing this to him, uh, but yet he still trusted him. Yeah. So then, with all this in our minds, how do the Ten Commandments fit in? Which is what we started this conversation about. Well, after being diagnosed as terminal, after being led back to Christ by the commandments, after reviewing the evidence Christ has provided of his trustworthiness, after the Holy Spirit, after we say, okay, I trust you, God. I enter into this, this trust arrangement. I have an understanding with you. I understand that you love me. I understand that you died to save me. I understand that you want to heal me. And I open my heart to you and understand that you're going to come in and heal me. I'll just follow where you lead. I have this understanding. After all of that, then the Ten Commandments become a promise of what you will look like. You see, it's not a set of rules you have to obey. It's when you trust me, when you enter this understanding with me, the new covenant, I will write my law on your hearts and minds. And you see, in that love relationship, you won't have any other gods before me. You won't take my name in vain. You won't make any images. You'll remember my Sabbath. You won't murder. You won't, uh, you'll honor your parents. You won't steal. You won't, I mean, all this stuff, you won't do it. Because it's going to be in your heart. So the Ten Commandments are still not something we have to work hard to keep. They're the promise of what we look like when he writes it in our hearts and minds. And Tim, it's actually beyond the, just those ten. It's the principles behind the ten that are written in our hearts so that we have a better understanding 
she said it's not even just the ten, it's the principles. And she's exactly right. It's the principles of the law of love, the law of beneficence. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend, which are written on the heart, which expands us way beyond just those ten. Well, that's the character of God. Until we know what God is like, we can't trust him. Isn't, isn't it a typical misunderstanding for us Adventists as well to understand the law and Galatians as the Ten Commandments? Yes. It's so clear that if it's the Ten Commandments, we're getting rid of the Sabbath. Yes, but it... The law and Galatians is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And if that's the law, then we're absolutely sure we're not actually throwing anything out. But we're just understanding what the purpose of the law is. And, and the law in Galatians, when Paul said the law was added to lead us to Christ, we just read it. The law was added to lead us to Christ. Which law was added? Was the, was the law of love added? Yes. No. No. The law of love was in existence because it originates in the God of love. It has no beginning point. It has no end point. God is love. So the law, is, law of love is never added. God is love. But were the rituals added? The ceremonial law, was it added? How about the Ten Commandment written law? Was it added? Yes. And the law of Galatians is specifically, primarily talking about the Ten Commandment law. The Ten Commandment law is a distillation of the grander law of love that you mentioned just a moment ago, specifically for this creation. Prior to the creation of the earth was God's law of love in existence. When Satan rebelled in heaven, did he break the law of God? Yes? No. Of course he did. Which law? The Ten Commandments or the law of love? In fact, um, did the angels in heaven need a law that told about how things are passed down to the third and fourth generation? Did they need that law? Did they need a law that talked about uh, not committing adultery with each other? Or honoring their mothers and fathers? Or what about um, the Sabbath commandment? When did the Sabbath come into existence? Creation. Creation week of what? The entire universe or this planet? Because it says in Job chapter 38 that the sons of God sang together for joy when the foundations of the earth were laid. The universe had already been created. Angels had already been created when this world was was created. And how do we measure the Sabbath day? Sundown to sundown. So the rotation of this planet in relation to that sun, which wasn't created until day four of, of this planet. Of the creation of this we- of this planet, so the Sabbath was not always in existence, and so the the ten- the Sabbath was made for man. This, so the, the Sabbath was not always in existence. So the Ten Commandment law was added for our need. We needed it, just as it said in Romans, to diagnose us and to restore us. And God added that at Sinai. However, the the law of love, the basis upon which the Ten Commandments are are an expression of, was always in existence. Was never added, and that's the foundational point upon which life is made. So what about this idea, it said in here, about the covenant? We're under a new covenant. What is the new covenant? How is it different from the old covenant? Where did the new covenant originate? Any thoughts on that? Has that ever confused anybody, old new covenants? You know, it's another one of those areas where Satan uses this language to introduce distortion. And, and they split up this idea of, of, of the covenant of law and the covenant of grace, the, um, the dispensation of law, dispensation of grace, and God of law in the Old Testament, a God of grace. And, and they really cut, start to, to create disparities in our thinking that somehow God is different in times past, and now Christ has come and died, and he's paid the penalty, and now that the penalty's paid, God doesn't have to be so punitive and so mean-spirited, and he can be gracious 
gracious and loving because the Son is pleading His blood to the Father and we've moved from law to grace because the law has been paid and this kind of distortion. No. Listen to this. Faith I live by, page 77. As the Bible presents two laws, one changeless and eternal, the other provisional and temporary, which two do you think? Which is changeless and eternal? Law of love. Provisional and temporary. The diagnostic instrument that was given to diagnose. See, once you're perfectly well, is the diagnostic instrument um, invalid and no longer um, and no longer uh, accurate, or is it simply not needed because there's nothing to diagnose anymore? And see, one day when we're all in the hereafter in the kingdom of heaven, the Ten Commandments they may have a, a set hanging on the wall for posterity to look at, but it won't have a purpose anymore. We won't need to be diagnosed as terminal. We won't have to have sin abound anymore like Paul talked about because we're all healed and restored. Does that mean that the Ten Commandments are invalidated and wrong? Of course not. They're just not needed to diagnose sin anymore because there's no more sin to diagnose. So, two laws. The covenant of grace was first made with man in... Now, which covenant? The covenant of grace first made with man in Eden after the fall. There was given a divine promise that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. Covenant of grace in Eden. To all men, this covenant offered pardon and the uh, assisting grace of God for future obedience through faith in Christ. It also promised them eternal life on the condition of fidelity to God's law. We'll come back to that because this, this language might be, if you're having trouble with this language, we're going to clarify it up. Thus the patriarchs receive hope of salvation. The same covenant was renewed to Abraham and the promise, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This promise pointed to Christ. So Abraham understood it, and he trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. What does forgiveness of sin mean? What does it mean to be pardoned? What does it mean to be in harmony or obedience to the law? It was this faith that was accounted unto him for righteousness. The covenant with Abraham also maintained the authority of God's law. There's the law again. Why, why does the law have to be maintained as an authority? The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be perfect. The testimony of God concerning his faithful servant was, Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charges, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. The Abrahamic covenant was ratified by the blood of Christ. And it is called the second or new covenant. Did you know the covenant that Abraham had is the second or new covenant? Yeah, isn't that interesting? Because the blood by which it was sealed was shed after the blood of the first covenant. The covenant of grace is not a new truth, for it existed in the mind of God from all eternity. This is why it is called the everlasting covenant. There is hope for us only as we come under the Abrahamic covenant, which is the covenant of grace by faith in Christ Jesus. The gospel preached to Abraham through which he had hope was the same gospel that is preached to us today. Did you all know that? Do you see how, or have you ever at least had presented to you this idea that the Old Testament stuff was somehow different than the New Testament stuff? It's not. One covenant. It's only one covenant. One covenant of grace. The the old covenant, the covenant that didn't work, was the covenant of, I'll work my way to heaven. I'll work. I'll do it. I'll keep it. I'll obey it. It's up to me. That covenant doesn't work. The covenant of grace, the covenant of God's love, God's intervention, God's restoration, that Christ would be the means in which this problem would be resolved, that's the, the, the new covenant. Everything was perfect in heaven and it was. Why would he, why would they want to rebel? I mean, it was absolutely perfect. So what, what, 
reason would he want to rebuild from a perfect system? You know, the, the scriptures talk about the mystery of iniquity. If you could give a reason to explain and justify, justify, make right, that's what justify means, to make right. If you could make right or explain why Satan did it, then it wouldn't be sin. It would be right to do. There is no right explanation as to why. There is no way to explain why he did it and make it right. So it's called the mystery because there's no explanation for it. It makes no sense at all. It's illogical. It's irrational. It's nonsense. So, to, so that's the mystery of iniquity. Why would he do it? Well, the understanding is, it says in Ezekiel chapter 28, that he was perfect and righteous in all his ways until the day that iniquity was found within him. And it says he, it gives us a clue that he became proud and he became focused on self. He turned his mind away from, from being an other-centered being who was giving of all the blessings that he had received to share and uplift others to be a being who started to turn inward toward self and wanted to take for himself and became selfish. And that is really what happened to him. Are we told that he got a little jealous because he had been kind of a messenger that went about giving God information to angels and all of a sudden he was left out? Yes, that's right. He got jealous of Christ and, that, and, and tried to presume equality with Christ. Let's move on to Sunday's lesson. Sunday's lesson. Uh, I want to commend the, the study guide for paragraph number three. It was well said. It says, um, Meanwhile, the moral requirements remain unchanged in the New Testament because these were founded in the character of God and in Christ. Notice, the moral requirements of the law have their foundation where? In the character of God. That's exactly right. Uh, don't, don't forget that, because sometimes people really start separating out the law and the character of God, but it's not. Uh, first paragraph says, Perhaps the greatest difference between the religion of the Old Testament and that of the New is the fact that the New Testament era was introduced by the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. He was sent by God to be our, the Savior. Men could not ignore him and expect to be saved. Only through the atonement he provided could they have their sins forgiven. Only by the imputation of his perfect life could they stand before God without condemnation. In other words, salvation was through the righteousness of Jesus and nothing else. couple questions. Only through the atonement he provided could they have their sins forgiven. What does that mean? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Hebrews 9.22 So does it mean... Here's, here's some of the options that came to me. Does it mean to have our sins forgiven... That God personally pardons. To get, without the shedding of blood, we could not get God's personal pardon. Does it mean that without the shedding of blood, that we are not reconciled or restored back into unity and oneness with God and sin is not removed from us? Or does it mean both? Well, could God personally pardon without the death of Christ? Yes, yes or no? Was God personally able to extend his personal pardon of mankind's sin without Christ dying? Would that resolve the sin problem and restore us to unity with God? So Christ's death without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, was not designed to get God to be personally pardoning. The scriptures describe that he forgives iniquity freely. He is a forgiving God. He doesn't have to be influenced by the blood of his son. And this is a distortion that, that is ubiquitous in Christianity that Christ's death was necessary for God to be able to pardon or to get God to pardon or to get God to forgive or to earn a legal forgiveness or the law prevented God wanted to he, his heart wanted to but the law stopped him he couldn't legally do it and so Christ had to die in order to legally forgive all this kind of stuff is a distortion however 
Could God do the second? Could he heal and restore mankind back into his original design without the death of Christ? No. Is that what forgiveness really means? Not simply personal pardon, but actual restoration, regeneration. Let me read to you out of Mount of Blessings 114. But forgiveness has a broader meaning than many suppose. When God gives the promise that he will abundantly pardon, he adds, as if the meaning of that promise exceeded all that we could comprehend. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. Did you know this is pertaining to God's forgiveness? This higher, this broader, this grander thing. Listen to what it goes on. God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he sets us free from condemnation. It is not only forgiveness for sin, but reclaiming from sin. It is the outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. Transformation is forgiveness. David had the true conception of forgiveness when he prayed, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And again he said, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from the record books in heaven? No, from us. From us. Forgiveness is the process of actually removing rebelliousness, fear, insecurity, selfishness, sinfulness from the, our hearts and minds. That's what it is. It's a creation of a new heart and right spirit. It's a reclaiming from sin, not just a pardon for sin. It's hugely more than what the penal substitution model would have you believe. That other model has this idea that it was necessary for Christ to die for God to be able to legally pardon. And they make this a legal transaction in in record books in heaven, stamping forgiveness, payment made, rather than this other thing which happens in us. Now, question, where does sin happen? In record books in heaven or in people? Then where is the the plan of salvation going to be applied? In record books in heaven or in the hearts and minds of people? You see, the solution, the remedy has to be applied where the defect is. And the defect is not in books. The defect is in the hearts and minds of people. And so that's where the remedy Christ achieved is applied. It's in our hearts and minds. Yes? There's some real disparity on how we look at perfection related to the law or related to forgiveness. And because some people feel like there's no way that you can be perfect here, they don't even look for that to happen. They just you know, give up, and they just, they don't keep coming to God. Not that you should say, I'm perfect, but you should be open to the idea that God is trying to perfect you. Well, I like the way she said that. God is trying to perfect us. If you are sick with cancer, we have several in our class struggling with that, and they're going to the doctor wanting to be healed. Do you think they're thinking to the doctor, I want to be 85% cured? (laughs) Or do they want to be perfectly restored? Now, where's the pressure on the patient to work really hard to, to, to make the cancer go away? Or is the pressure on the one who is providing remedy? See, God wants to heal us perfectly. Anything that we come to with God and says, you know, God, I know it's not possible. I can't, I can't be healed. I can't be sin-free. I, I can't be restored. Uh, it's not possible for you to regenerate me. Uh, you see the problem with that kind of thinking? 
No, we don't have to put pressure on us. And the reason people rebel against that idea is because we've been in an old system that says, you've got to make every, you've got to make yourself up. You've got to perfectly obey the law. You've got to do all these things. And it puts this terrible pressure. It's like the cancer patient going and said, you've got to make your cancer go away. Well, you can't do it. But shouldn't we say in our transaction with God, I have faith. I have an understanding with you that I don't have to cure myself. I can't. But I understand you can. And you can cure me perfectly. That's what perfection is. And by the way, biblical perfection is not about behavior. Biblical perfection is about maturation of heart attitude, where we come to understand and love God and others more than we love self. That's biblical perfection. It's not about a particular act or deed. It's about the attitude of the heart that matures. Yes? Um, I just think that sometimes we forget to emphasize that once we come to the doctor, and even though we're not cured, we're still saved because God is perfect and He is going to save us completely. But we start at the very beginning when we get our first injection of whatever that love is. I like it. Soon as you trust the physician, soon as you put your life in his hands, soon as you have gone from a position of distrust and opposition and rebellion to a position of trust and openness, then you have had the most important transformation of all. This is, by the way, what the Bible calls justification. This is, uh, this is conversion. This is being reborn. And the greatest transformation that happens is the, at that moment when we have actually gone from distrust, fear, and rebellion to a position where we open the heart and say, I surrender to you and I genuinely trust you with my life. The rest of that is just gravy. It's just the cleaning up, mopping up process after that. That is the point of salvation, yes. For the state. Work hard, do the best you can, and God will make up the difference. Yes, work hard, do the best you can, God will make up the difference. Yes, yes. So, forgiveness has a larger meaning. It's talking about this. So, the paragraph talked about standing before God without condemnation because of the imputation of Christ. Now, let's consider this statement. I'm going to take you through some, some hard, maybe a little bit harder language here today and see if, uh, and see if this makes sense. Do you like this statement and, and, and see how this sometimes can be used by a, a more legal mindset? This is out of um, Desire of Ages 667. In my name, Christ bade his disciples pray. In my name, pray in my name. In Christ's name, his followers are to stand before God. Through the value of the sacrifice made for them, they are of value in the Lord's sight. Because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, they are accounted precious. For Christ's sake, the Lord pardons those who fear him. He does not see in them the vileness of the sinner. He recognizes in them the likeness of his son in whom they believe. Now I'm going to pause right there. What do you think about that paragraph? Very clear. Or does that sound like, does it, could it lend itself to be interpreted as Christ is influencing the Father? Could it lend itself to be interpreted as because of, of Christ's sake, because of something Christ, the Father's now willing, it's somehow influencing him? Could it sound like heavenly accounting tricks? You know, it said, uh, as it said here, because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, they are accounted precious. So in heaven, we have a little angel notating in our record an accounting uh, maneuver to account us as something we're not really actually in heart and mind. Could it sound that way? Could it sound like God values us because of Jesus? Yeah. Well, this is what happens when you lift 
paragraphs or phrases out of context to prove points. If we, I'm going to read to you the next couple of paragraphs that follow immediately after. See if this actually completely clears up every one of those distortions. It says, The Lord is disappointed when His people play lo, place low estimate upon themselves. He desires His chosen heritage to value themselves according to the price He placed upon them. Now get this. God wanted them. Else He would not have sent His Son on such an expensive errand to redeem them. Okay? Who wanted us? Who sent his son? For God so loved the world that he sent it. So right there is it that the son is influencing the father to value us. No. So there's no influence on the son to get the father to value us. It's very clear God loved us so he sent his son to redeem us. Did it cost the father and son a lot to do this? It sure did. It was quite expensive. If you have a child dying of kidney failure and you donate a kidney to save them, will that cost you? Yes. But is it a legal price that you're paying? Or is it the price necessary to fix the problem that's killing your child? Yes, that's what, what's what's going on. You say he has he has use for them. He and he is well pleased when they make the very highest demands upon him. Have you been making the highest demands upon the Father? He's well pleased when we do that. It says that they may glorify his name. They may expect large things if they have faith in his promises. But to pray in the name of Christ means much. Remember we talked about this first thing over here, this first paragraph said, um, in my name, Christ told us, we can stand before the Father in Christ's name. This is what it says. To pray in the name of Christ means much. It means that we are to accept his character, manifest his spirit, and work his works. The Savior promise is given on the condition of, if you love me, keep my commandments. He saves men not in sin, but from sin, that whole forgiveness thing, delivering us, transforming us, and those who love him will be shown by their love and obedience. All true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, now this is really where it gets down to it. If we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims if we consent. Remember, it's us, up to us. We have the privilege, the freedom to say yay or nay. If we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. Wow, does that sound hard? Does that sound like we really got to work at this to carry out our own impulses? No, it's not a work we have to do. It's an experience we have to experience. The, w- the will, refined and sanctified, will find its highest delight in doing a service. When we know God, it is, a, is our privilege to know Him. Our life will be a life of continual obedience through an appreciation of the character of Christ. Through communion with God, sin will become hateful to us. Now, that first paragraph, which at first sounded so difficult, like maybe it was leading us some other direction, do you see right below it just completely is cleared up if we just keep reading? And you're going to find that that other model, which they will cite a reference here, a text there, a passage here, a quotation there, if you go back and read it widely, read on, bring more of the inspired record to bear, that other model always falls apart. It always falls apart. It only sustains itself when you, a little here, a little there, because it's not really the weight of evidence. Questions, thoughts about that? Monday's paragraph, it talks about um, the moral law, and it, it asks the questions about the Jewish laws and regulations. And the, the question is about the feast days. 
What were the purpose of the feast days in the Old Testament? And I had somebody email me this week uh, from, I don't know where, somewhere around the, the circle, uh, asking, saying that they've got some friends who are teaching that the feast days and the, you know, the, the Passover and those types of things are still obligatory upon us and we are required to observe them today. And uh, he wondered how he could demonstrate that that wasn't the case. What would you say? Are feast days, Passover, and Pentecost and all those things uh, applicable and for us to observe today? What evidence would you cite? What would you say? They're a trail of process back to God that they went through every year to show them this is how you start being passed over until you're tabernacling with God. Did you hear, everybody hear what Linda said? She said the feast days were annual festivals that were designed to, in in an enactment and a celebration, give an overview of the plan of salvation to restore us. So the first feast every year was what? In the annual cycle, the first is Passover. And and what did God do? Romans chapter 3, as soon as man fell into sin, God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He passed over. And so when man fell into sin, God did not bring uh, the full consequences of deviation from the law of love to bear, but he interceded or intervened to hold off those consequences. He passed over in grace. And then the next is the, the, the unleavened bread, which means that God has passed over, and if we take the unleavened bread, what's the unleavened bread symbolic of? The, the character of Christ. The life that he achieved for us if we partake of it. You see? So he passes over, and we then must partake of Christ, have a new heart and a right spirit. And then it's the Feast of Weeks, which is the feast in which we go out and work. And then it's the Feast of the First Fruits, and then it's the Feast of Pentecost, and then it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, wait, I forgot one. Did I forget one? Oh, yeah, trumpets. Trumpets, which is announcing. Is announcing, yeah, uh, and then and then the uh, and then the feast of um, of tabernacles, and that is just showing that that uh, the trumpets are the the loud cry, preparing the Lord is coming, and then after the trumpets are the tabernacle. We tabernacle, we live eternally with God. So the feast days were symbolically trying to teach this progression of falling into sin and God's plan to ultimate restoration. Did people have to keep the feast days in order to be saved, even in Old Testament times? Yay and nay. What evidence do we have? Nebuchadnezzar and Naaman. Were Nebuchadnezzar and Naaman saved? The evidence from from inspiration is yes, they're saved. Did they keep the Jewish feast days and holidays? No. The Jewish feast days and holidays were not a requirement for salvation. And of course, if you read Hebrews, it tells you that the blood of bulls and goats cannot cleanse from sin. If they could, there'd been no need for Christ to come. Okay, They were just simply a teaching tool to teach us what Christ was going to accomplish for us. You didn't have to do all the rituals in order to be saved. What did you have to do? Very simple. Trust God. That's it. You had to really trust Him. You had to enter that agreement, that understanding with Him, where you turn your heart over to Him and allow Him and the Spirit in to transform and cleanse you. Nebuchadnezzar did that. Naaman did that. They're saved. So if the feast days were not a requirement for salvation in Old Testament times, how much less so are they a requirement now? Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah. Questions? Tuesday's lesson, it says the early church was was turned to confusion by a group of Pharisees who argued that the Gentiles must be circumcised. 
If they're arguing Gentiles must be circumcised, where are they turning the focus? To, phys- to behaviors, to self, to performance, to acts, to deeds, to the law. Where was Paul trying to turn the focus? Where does the scriptures try to take our focus? Fix your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, to Christ, the character of God, the character of love, the renewing of the heart. Bottom green section in Tuesday's lesson. I'm sure you all prepared for our discussion at this point. What is your attitude towards church leadership? That's the question in Tuesday's lesson, green section. How cooperative are you? Why is cooperation so important? How could we function if everyone was doing only what he or she wanted independent of the larger body? So what should our attitude be towards church leadership? Respectful. She says respectful. Other thoughts? Yes, we should be respectful, absolutely. Should we, should we surrender our thinking to church leadership? No. Does a position of leadership in the church ensure that the leader is correct or right? No. Yay, nay? No. Caiaphas, was he a leader in the church? Yeah. High priest, highly respected. Was he right? No. no. Was he even on God's side of the controversy? Can you be on God's side and be in error? Absolutely. Was Caiaphas even on God's side? No. No. What should Martin Luther have done when church leadership met, had councils, and the leaders voted that he was wrong? What should Martin Luther have done in regard to church leadership? Should he have surrendered his position to church leadership? Yes. If he thought his attitude right, Caiaphas, God would have loved to have saved him. Yeah, God loves Caiaphas. Sure, he would have loved to have saved Caiaphas. Yeah. Now, that's not the question about God's attitude towards, towards Caiaphas. No. It's, it, it was the, but did Christ surrender his judgment and his decisions and his behavior and his teachings and his doctrines to Caiaphas's will? No. No, he didn't. When, um, do we determine truth by the vote of church leaders? No. What if the church leaders vote on things unrelated to truth? And if you're not familiar with our own church history, Ellen White, what did she do when the church leaders wanted her to go to Australia? She went to Australia. Was going to Australia, she said, actually she said and wrote, I have no word from the Lord that he wants me to go to Australia. But since the church leadership wants me to go, I'll go. Was going to Australia compromising truth? Not at all. It's not a compromise of truth. So, is it possible we could ever find ourselves worshiping in places we haven't decided we wanted to go? Like Australia? Hmm. By vote of a committee, maybe? But um, does moving a place of worship actually um, compromise truth? No, we can do that. It doesn't compromise truth. Truth originates in God and, and is truth regardless of leadership or leadership's opinion. Our ideas and opinions must be in harmony with the evidences of God's word, not the opinion of man, even if those men hold leadership positions in the church. And one of the things that you find happening throughout history of the human race is that people surrender their individuality and their judgment to someone else in authority because it's easier to be told than to think for yourself. This is why we had all the abuses of history. Why do you think we had problems with Nazi Germany? I was just following orders. Just doing what I was told. Just doing what I was told. The Dark Ages. Why do we have the Dark Ages? 
people just accepted leadership. Someone else knows. He studied. He knows. If you followed the forums after my article in Spectrum, there is this idea being presented by people. I haven't talked to Dr. Jennings. I haven't been to his class. I've never read anything he wrote. I haven't visited his website. But if leadership says there's a problem, there must be. You see this expressed there. Did you all see it? Yeah. I mean, what is that? Yeah. Don't you think the general congregation of the Adventist Church believes that these people are put in those positions by God to lead us? And so to question them is like questioning God in, in essence. I mean, don't you think there's kind of that foundation that these people are, are placed there by God? It's an interesting... It, to there is a, there is inspired um, writings that talk about people being ordained by God, being leaders uh, placed by God. That we should not uh, we should not um, uh, oppose or, or belittle or or, or de- denigrate the leaders because they're God's representative in that place. There's this language clearly. Did that apply to, to Caiaphas? Now the office that Caiaphas held was placed there by God. Was Caiaphas himself placed there by God? Well, actually, in Desire of Ages, Ellen White says he got it by bribe. He used money to bribe the Roman government to put him in there. This position was no longer put there by God. That's how he got it. Even if you were placed by God, you're wrong. Oh, wow, wow. Did you hear what she said? She said, even if you are placed there by God, you can still be wrong. Peter, was Peter called as an apostle? Was he, after his denial, did Christ restore him personally? to that authority and position of apostleship, didn't he? Did Paul have to uh, uh, confront him publicly? Because Peter was wrong. Yeah, he wasn't an enemy of God anymore. He wasn't God's enemy, like Caiaphas was. He was on God's side. But I think your point is well taken. Peter was still wrong. Yes? The Peter principle, which is sort of a derivation of what you're talking about right now, has any validity. Uh, people who have authority, who gain authority, actually get to a point where they either learn or they get to a point where they can't go further. And you can elaborate on that if you want to. Leadership should be able to learn. All right, I agree. I agree. And I think, and this is why in our class I, I say this periodically we never want to arrive at the truth. Because if you arrive, no, well, there's nothing more to learn. We want to be growing in the truth. Truth is unfolding. God is infinite. We're finite. No matter how much we know today of the truth, there will always be more to learn tomorrow. Through all eternity, we'll grow in truth. So I just want to have a heart that loves truth. Uh, this is why I'm not afraid of criticism. I'm not afraid to stand up and say, okay, here's what I believe and here's why. If you see errors in it, don't just condemn me for it. Show me where it's wrong. Show me where the pieces don't fit because I want to get the errors out and I want a better and more clean understanding and system. I recognize I'm finite. I recognize God's infinite. Only He is infallible. There's got to be some things in my mind I don't understand right. Show me so I can understand them more perfectly. So I'm open to that. But people who arrive at a system and form a system, they box themselves in. And anything that then doesn't fit in that system is called heresy. Rather than, than arriving at truth. Okay, we're going to close with one more point. This is in Wednesday's lesson. When it says um, in the last paragraph, it says, although the Jewish believers weren't to impose their rules and traditions, by the way, the, the council met and said, 
We're not going to put all the Jewish traditions on the Gentiles. Uh, we're only going to tell them, don't eat blood, don't eat animal sacrifice to idols, and don't uh, commit adultery um, uh, and those types of things. Okay, uh, sexual immorality. And so it says, although the Jewish believers weren't to impose their rules uh, uh, and traditions on Gentiles, the council wanted to make sure that the Gentiles didn't do things that would have been deemed offensive to the Jews who were united with them in Jesus. I immediately read that, circled it, marked it, and go, Really? Is that the reason they gave these? Because we would be offend- we Jews will be offended if you do these things, so let's not do them for that reason. I don't think that had anything to do with it. I think it had to do with their concern for the, 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 the character development and the minds of these people. You have to remember the context. These Gentile converts uh, have been spending their whole life worshiping what? Idols. Pagan gods. Fertility rites. So, God wants them to come to understand He is the only true God. So, what happens then if they go to the market and they're still buying stuff offered to idols and they are eating all this food offered to idols and their lives are getting more blessed? Do you think they could be confused? Is God blessing me? Jesus blessing me? Or is my idol that I've worshipped my whole life and still eating from blessing me? See, if you take that out, we aren't eating anything. We have no association with that idol at all. And then blessings come. You see, it helps them understand more clearly. They won't be as confused. Uh, also, the, the, they're so vulnerable to going back into the immorality issues. We need to stay away from that. And, of course, then the physiological health benefits, the blood. When you actually drink blood or eat raw meat, it gives huge hormones and, um, uh, stre- and it actually affects and causes us to be more irritable, more lustful. And so it increased in them the passions and lusts and make it harder for them to actually be self-governed. So I think it was for their character development and for their coming to a greater trust relationship with God and to remove the, and detox their, their thinking from all the distortions of paganism that these particular rules were given because they were so closely associated with their old belief systems. What do you all think? Questions or comments before we close? Prayer? Well, it's also interesting, the thing you were saying just there, that with, um, with the minimum of like this you have to do, right afterwards in that verse in Acts, it says that Moses has his teachers in the synagogues. And it's interesting that those things they're told to do there were actually the minimum requirements to even enter the synagogue. Did those things, you could be allowed to come in and hear the rest of it too. So it wasn't like these are the only things you ever have to do and then you're fine. But it's kind of in order for you to be able to get the rest of the package as well, these are some things that you'll you'll have to do. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm interested also because if we had time, we could talk about Romans, I think, chapter 6, is it? Uh, or is it 14? I think my Romans 14. Where Paul talks about... Um, yeah, we give them permission to eat it anyway. Yeah. Where Paul says the man who has great faith can eat foods that sacrifice the idols, but the ones with weak faith are the ones that don't eat foods sacrifice the idols. We, we had time to talk about it. You guys think about that one. Huh. They give the rules, don't eat foods, sacrifice idols. Paul says, but when your faith is great, it's okay to do it. So yeah. we as Adventists kind of have those rules too for new believers that come in. Um, you know, no jewelry, no um, meat eating, no... We have these little standards that we set for our new believers as well. Yeah, no rock and rap music, no movies and R-rated stuff. Why? Because we want to detox the brains, don't we, from all this other stuff. That's right. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us the opportunity to study. And you have given us truth. And you've given us minds to be used. And we ask that your Holy Spirit will come in and, and help our minds grow in truth and love. May we come to know you more fully and love each other more freely. We pray in your holy name. Amen.